If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 23rd, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And boy, is there a ton, as usual, to talk about today. And the best part, almost none of it has anything to do with Donald Trump. (laughs) That that's actually the best part uh, of the whole thing because you know as much as Trump is important and interesting, it does get a little tiring talking about him constantly. Correct. Yeah. So so while we will talk a little bit about Trump today and the crazy story involving Rod Rosenstein, which broke on uh, Friday, and maybe uh, might even talk a little bit about his penis, which came out almost literally this week. Uh, the main story, obviously, this week has been. The uh, the issue of the controversy that broke out, the allegation by Dr. Blessy Ford uh, that she was assaulted back in high school by the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is someone who I have not spoken a lot about. I'm not even sure I've written a mediate column about uh, him, mainly because, well, I like him. I think he's he seems like a good pick. Uh, and I agree with him on most things. I'm a little concerned about uh, his position on executive power and how that could come up with regard to the Trump-Russia investigation. But as a conservative, he seems like a solid conservative, seems like a good good guy uh, outside of this uh, Blessy Ford allegation. Uh, and so I haven't really bothered with it because, as you know, I don't really talk about most of the things that other people are talking about, especially if I don't have anything unique to say about it. And so I've kind of let the Kavanaugh thing alone until now, because obviously this allegation is a huge story, but it's also a story that is almost uniquely fashioned to appeal to my experiences. Uh, And what I mean by that is this. Well, first of all, um, I'm almost exactly Brett Kavanaugh's age. Uh, He went to Georgetown Prep. I went to Georgetown University, which is not directly connected in any way to Georgetown Prep, but it's in the same basic vicinity, and it's a Catholic school, Jesuit. Uh, But I also went to an all-boys Catholic prep school in high school in Philadelphia, a place called Holy Ghost Prep. Uh, And interestingly, like Blessy Ford, my sisters went to an all-girls school that was nearby, kind of our sister school, although that's not exactly analogous, apparently, 
uh, in what happened with uh, allegedly with the Ford Kavanaugh situation. But so I, I know the area. I know the culture. I know the time period. And by the way, one of the things that I'm surprised hasn't been mentioned about the time period and this might blow some people's minds, and and frankly, it, it goes to part of the uh, potential credibility of Ford's story. I have absolutely no problem believing the idea uh, of these young, fairly young, seventeen to fifteen year old teenagers uh, having an alcohol party, because even though technically it happened allegedly in Maryland, right across the river at that time in Washington D.C., the legal drinking age was eighteen. Now, it absolutely blows my mind to think that when I was a freshman at Georgetown University in the fall of 1985, our class was the last year that was grandfathered in with an 18 drinking age. And boy, did that change everything. And, you know, maybe this is uh, my memory playing tricks on me. I don't think it is. And by the way, we have an amazing hour number two amazing hour number two with the world's foremost memory expert, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, to talk about all the aspects of this case with regard to memory. So you cannot miss that. And it's fascinating stuff. But my very strong memory is that during freshman orientation at Georgetown, we had free university-provided beer kegs at university events for freshmen. Because the legal drinking age was 18. Now, talk about creating a problem. <laughs> you got kids from all over the country <laughs> who are in a new situation. They're trying to impress everybody. They're nervous. They're, you know, this may be the first time they've been away from home. And all of a sudden, there's free alcohol being provided by the university. There was absolutely a culture of alcoholism at Georgetown University in the years that I went there, largely because it was accepted because the legal drinking age was 18. I, I mean, it, I, I could, I'm not going to bother you with them, but I could tell you all sorts of stories of extreme, and I thought this was normal because <laughs> I never really cared about alcohol that much. My parents never really drank that much, but they never forbid it either. So it didn't have a real forbidden fruit aspect to me. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is nuts. <laughs> I mean, everyone is drunk constantly. So, and there was some drinking in our high school too, even though that was not legal. And even though the drinking age was 21, but when it's 18, that changes the equation because now it's much easier to get. So anyway, so that's the first aspect that of this story that uniquely appeals to, to my experiences. But the the second and maybe the most important is, I got to tell you, I've been having agita about uh, getting agita about the uh, similarities in this allegation to the primary allegation against Jerry Sandusky in the Penn State uh, Joe Paterno case, specifically that of Aaron Fisher, which I don't believe to be true. In fact, I'm positive it's not true. But there are, and those who know the story, in fact, other people have already come to me and said, wow, this story sounds a lot like Aaron Fisher's story. There are a lot of similarities, including the fact that there's evidence that the first time she ever says that this occurred is in a therapy session. That's what happens with Aaron Fisher. That's what happens with Blessy Ford, only with her, it was 30 years later rather than three years later. And that's a big difference. 
But there's all, there's other similarities as well. Maybe we don't get into as as we move along here. But let me make something very clear. I am somebody, and people who know me are very much aware of this. I am hyper, hyper aware of confirmation bias. And anything that I know that I want to believe, I am far, far, far more hesitant to believe that. In other words, taking this out of the theoretical and putting it into the practical, I'll make no bones about it. I like Brett Kavanaugh. I want him confirmed. And I would love to see me too have a high-profile disaster on their hands. And I would love to see one of these allegations finally rejected and debunked because I think we're seeing a lot more of these than, than certainly the news media is ever willing to accept. So I have an interest in this, but I'm aware of that interest. And so I'm accounting for it. And so I have actually been hypersensitive to look at things from her perspective. And I have been very open-minded and still am to this day, open-minded about the nature of her allegation. And I have been over backwards to both remain open-minded as well as come up for with an explanation for how all these people could be saying different things and she's not lying. A theory which I get into in hour number two with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and which I'll also get into in this hour number one. So let's go through her story from her perspective. And there are aspects of this that have the ring of truth. The first is I got no problem with an alcohol party with high school kids in suburban Washington, D.C. in 1982. Got no problem with that. I have no problem with a seven. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't have a problem with it. I'm not saying I have no problem with the idea that it would happen that a 17-year-old drunk boy would try to make a clumsy, as she referred to it, move on a 15-year-old girl wearing a bathing suit and it for it to go poorly and for the girl to be traumatized by that. I'm a little bit concerned about the level of trauma. I mean, and I, you're not allowed to say this because this is, you know, this is, you know, not allowed to say anything like this, but uh, she was not raped, okay? There was no nudity even by her own story. Yet, yet her story is being treated uh, by her allies and by the Me Too people as if it was a rape. Like the Washington Post, which has essentially been her PR arm for this entire story, did a bizarre profile of her recreating or revisiting or uh, reinventing, I think is the word they use, reinventing her entire life because of this. Moving 3,000 miles away and... She escaped her former reality. What? Really? Really? I mean, I come. I, I, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to be insensitive, but even as she outlines the story, while horrible and wrong, and yes, by the way, to be clear, disqualifying for Kavanaugh, not necessarily because of the assault, or that might be disqualifying, but because he lied about it. He will have lied about it if this is true. So if this is true, I'm all in favor of him being disqualified from the court. Got no problem with that. But even if we accept everything she's saying in this 36-year-old story as true, I don't know how this forces her to recreate, reinvent her whole life. And this goes 
this gives me the heebie-jeebies with regard to Penn State because this is exactly the opposite. or This is exactly the way that a lot of the stories in the Penn State thing were framed, and they, which were the opposite of reality. And I'm not saying this is the case here, but oftentimes when these story break, these kind of stories break, people take a position or create a narrative that is the opposite of the truth. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, let's pretend she did feel like she needed to escape. Maybe something bad happened in her life. Who knows? She had a horrible experience with her parents or friends or whatever. She just she wanted out of Washington, D.C., so she gets as far away as she can. She goes to liberal academia in, in California. There's the possibility that she's looking for an explanation for why that happened, not that the event caused it to happen. And this happened constantly in the Sandusky case. All these guys, they went into drugs, they went into crime, they, they told all sorts of lies, they, their behavior made no sense. It was all Jerry's fault because I got, I got abused when I was a teenager. I killed people, literally. One guy murdered two people. <laughs> It was because it was because Jerry abused me. And that was actual, at least allegedly, true on sexual abuse. This, I don't want to minimize it. I'm not diminishing it. But can we please at least acknowledge what it actually was? Which was, at worst, a inappropriate, wrong, I'm, I have no problem calling it an assault, but she describes it as basically taking a minute we're with another guy in the room, which I think is the key part of this whole story. Whether she's telling the truth or whether it's a made-up story, for whatever reason that's made up, potentially via therapy, in my opinion, the fact that she puts Mark Judge, conservative writer, prominent writer, in the room is just off the charts important and, and frankly, bizarre to me. But this allegedly takes a minute. There's no nudity on his part. There's no nudity on her part. I, I get... Very nervous when people are overstating the level of trauma. Why are they doing that? That feels like it's a political maneuver. And, of course, there are all sorts of political elements to this. But I, I, I'm, I'm being too critical of her story because I wanted to start off with her version. Her version is somewhat credible because, one, uh, what's, what's her motivation? Now, I think there is some motivation, theoretically, because she's a liberal. She would love to see Kavanaugh's nomination go down. She will be, whether regardless of what happens from here, she will be a liberal superhero, a rock star for the rest of her life. Now, is that why she did it? I have no idea. But look at Colin Kaepernick. I mean, this is Colin Kaepernick times three. Colin Kaepernick, his life, contrary to what liberals would like to believe, is far, far better today than if he had never protested the anthem. If he had never protested the anthem, he's a former football player that no one even remembers who turned out to be a flash-in-the-pan disaster. But now he's a superhero to liberals making commercials for Nike, getting paid lots of money, getting awards from Harvard, and still being able to claim he sacrificed everything, <laughs> which is just, you know. It's just flat-out ridiculous. Okay. So, so, so there is a motive here. But... She also apparently told her therapist in 2012 that this happened long, obviously, before Brett Kavanaugh 
is a Supreme Court nominee, but not before Brett Kavanaugh is a public person, which is important. But it's also important to point out there's no evidence that she actually uses the name Brett Kavanaugh to the therapist, but the therapist may not have put it in the notes for whatever reason. It's important to remember always a therapist is not there as a court reporter or or a, an investigator trying to find out what actually happened. A therapist is there so that you keep paying the money for making them uh, have you feel better. And that's what the therapist is there for. The therapist wants to make you feel better so you'll keep paying them money. That's their motivation. I'm not a big fan of therapists, even before the Penn State case. But after the Penn State case, I have a lot of skepticism towards therapists. Uh, not all therapists, but I think therapists, by and large, are very liberal, very naive people who have a jaundiced view of the way the world really works, especially in the realm of abuse. Anyway, um, but it is powerful that she told the therapist something, and it, she might have told him that it was Brett Kavanaugh. And she supposedly also told her husband. Now, we don't know this because, well, it's her husband. I, I I presume he's a liberal, too. Uh, obviously, the husband has a, a, a perverse incentive here. But supposedly sometime in around 2004, she told him something. Again, we don't know what he, to- he le- she allegedly told him. Did she tell him the name or did she just tell him that she had had a assault experience in high school? So we don't know that. <clears throat> but she po- so supposedly also passed a lie detector test. Now, a lie detector test, I find significant, but what does a lie detector test indicate? It indicates that you believe something. Not that it happened. It indicates that you believe it happened. And when the time period is so long, 36 years after this allegedly occurred, that's not necessarily indication that it actually occurred because the human memory is crap. Human memory is crap. That's maybe the most important thing we have to remember, ironically enough. Human, I have an extremely good memory. Everybody who knows me says, oh my God, your memory is insane, especially for, for you know, things that you really are interested in that occurred many, many decades ago. Even I sometimes find out, wow, I totally misremembered this particular thing, either in the timeline or either it didn't happen the way that I thought it did. Humans are terrible at memory. And so inherently a story that's 36 years old, that the first record you ever told anybody about is 30 years old or 30 years after, six years old, that's inherently problematic. But let's pretend that she did tell her husband. Let's pretend she's totally telling the truth as she believes it. She supposedly told her husband. She supposedly told the therapist. Let's even pretend she said Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge. If all that is true, that's problematic for Kavanaugh. Because why is she using those names? That's a big if. Why is she using those names way before this has ever been a massive public issue and he's up for the Supreme Court. Well, I think that there's an explanation for this. I'm going to get to that briefly and I get to it into it with, in pretty good detail with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus in hour number two of the podcast, which again, I urge you to check out. 
But let, let's first of all lay out all the facts before we get into my theory about what happened. So there are reasons to believe Ford's story. I'm open to it. I want to make that clear. I am still very open to the fact that she may have been assaulted or believed that she was assaulted or some, something happened and she interprets it as an assault. I'm to, to this moment, I'm still open to that. In the last 24 to 36 hours, it's become more difficult for me to conclude that based upon what we currently know. And let me tell you why. The main reason is she lacks a lot of information that should be there. I'm a big believer in the theory that absence of evidence is often evidence of absence. <laughs> uh, not always, but sometimes. And in this case, it might be evidence of an absence of a real story. Because what does her story lack? Well, the most important thing, and I'm really big into this, especially because of my Penn State experience where there are no dates and very few actual places. Where and when did something happen? Where and when did it occur is the most important fact. It's the most important fact, especially in this day and age where in the Me Too environment, it is impossible for a man to exonerate himself from a sexual assault allegation, especially if he's a conservative white male. It is impossible for him to exonerate himself unless he can prove he wasn't there. Well, if you don't say where it was, and if you don't say when it was, you can't disprove the negative. It's not possible. All right? So the fact that she can't say for sure when it happened is a big problem for me. And going back to the therapist notes, if you go to her article that she wrote in the Washington Post, or I guess was quoted in the Washington Post, it's interesting because the, it appears as if the therapist notes, which might not be reliable, indicate that this happened when she was in her late teens. Okay, this is important. Let's pretend the therapist didn't write that down wrong. Who describes 15 as late teens? Nobody. Nobody. Late teens is at the earliest 16. It's probably 17 or 18. Maybe 19. So if she's telling the therapist late teens, and now she's saying it's 1982 and she's 15, that's really problematic to me. Why? Because it's, one, it shows a lack of memory that should be there. Because that's a, <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe my memory is awfully weird. But I remember those years better than I remember almost anything else. Because you remember your freshman year, your sophomore year, your junior year, your senior year. You, you remember those years. I, I, again, I keep relating to the Penn State thing. But for those who have followed that case, Mike McQuarrie, the, the only witness in that case, gets the year wrong, not once, in my opinion, but twice. And that's ridiculous because he's a football coach. A football coach thinks of everything in terms of calendar year because the football season ends at the end of the year. So that's their experts in years. They know what happens in any particular year. Well, it's the same thing when you're in high school. You remember the year. So that's the first problem. The second problem is it smells like reverse engineering. Here's what it smells like. 
when she comes to tell her story, when she comes forward and they're starting to put the pieces together and she gets a lawyer who's a super liberal, this, this uh, Katz uh, person, when they're starting to put this together, they go, okay, so you were late teens. How old were you? Ah, 17, 18. And then they look up and they go, well, that would make Brett Kavanaugh 19 or 20, and he's at Yale. And who knows? He might have been studying abroad that summer. Uh, that's problematic, right? Are you sure? Are you sure this happened when Brett Kavanaugh was 19 or 20? Well, no, 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 no. I, I, I think this might have happened when I was much younger. I was 15, not late teens. I was 15. Oh, okay. So now he's 17 and he's for sure in the Washington, D.C. area because he's still in high school. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, you were 15. It was 1982. That's what it feels like to me. All right? I don't know this for sure, but that's what it feels like. It's reverse engineered. Because she doesn't have a solid, which she should have, a memory of when it happened or, amazingly, where it happened. How do you not know where this happened? She doesn't even really have any clue about where it happened. She thinks it might have happened somewhere in the neighborhood of Columbia Country Club. Uh, and, And I know this area, okay? And... You know, Ed Whalen, who is a conservative who got torched rightfully for putting out on Twitter this uh, theory that he had come up with that uh, that that uh, Ford has misidentified her attacker. And it was actually another Georgetown prep student, which was just what the hell are you doing? I mean, <laughs> what, he's a, he's a, he's trying to exonerate Kavanaugh by accusing another guy who might be completely innocent. And it turns out according to Ford, that she knows this other guy and even visited him in the hospital. I mean, it completely blew up in his face. It was a total disaster. But there was one thing that Ed Whalen put out on Twitter that was, I think, really relevant. He had the location of the homes of the five people who were supposedly, according to Ford, at this party. Well, if you know the D.C. area, and you know how difficult it is to get around in the D.C. area. And you look at where those locations are. Check it out for yourself on Twitter. And he has the location of where Ford lived and where the country club is. Uh, there's a problem. There's a big problem because she's 15. She can't drive. She doesn't have anyone anywhere near her to take her to this party. By her own admission, her parents had no knowledge of this, which, okay, I get that kids do things without their parents' permission, but can we also remember this is 1982? There are no cell phones. There's no social media. Okay, so there's no way for her to communicate other than the good old-fashioned rotary phone with anybody to help her get around so she can't drive how the hell is she getting there and more importantly how is she getting home she's in a horrible situation where she says she didn't make a stink that's why no one remembers this right she never told anybody so how does she get home that's probably the number one question i would ask Ford. how did you get home because To me, you would remember that. 
You're this is that you're saying this is a trauma so dramatic that you have to reinvent your life over it. So you need to escape from this preppy den of death, as she's describing it. You you have to escape from this. You're a 15 year old girl who cannot drive. You got to get from the DC line to your home, which is miles and miles away. You cannot possibly walk. There's no way you could bike it uh, in, in that area. There's no way. There's way too many highways to get through between where she lived and where this event allegedly occurred or in the neighborhood in which this event allegedly occurred. So how did you get home? That to me is maybe the most important question. My guess is she would say, I don't remember. Well, that's a problem. Wait, wait, give, give me a theory. How do you think you got home? You, now, that's that's a, an incredibly important question, which I doubt she's ever going to get asked because that, that's too, oh, 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 no. Whoa, we can't have that. Bless FIBA. You know, you're, not allowed, you're not allowed to ask a question that's that simple um, uh, and that direct. But there's other things that we know that are also very problematic it's not just that she doesn't know when and where this happened i get that she doesn't tell anybody okay i am i get i get so criticized for my positions on the issue of sexual abuse which look i got two young daughters i am i'm as against sexual abuse as anybody my my the the sex talk i got from my mom not from my dad i got my sex talk from my mom which was like the worst sex talk in the world because she had had a horrible sexual experiences with my dad. She basically expressed that all sex was rape, okay? So I got like the worst sex talk ever from my mom, all right? So, so and maybe this is why I feel comfortable being a skeptic of me too because I know I'm the furthest thing from a rape apologist in the, in the world. However, I know reality and I, and I know the way the world actually works. And it's often far more complex than people want to believe that it is. But so I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I, I don't think it's smart. I'm not going to teach my daughters this. Trust me, we've already taught our six-year-old daughter, Grace, that if some man or boy does something to him, you kick him right in the penis. That's what you do. And then you tell somebody immediately. Uh, and so th- there is no question in my mind. I've had people ask me this on Twitter. Well, what if your daughter happened to your daughters? I'd be pissed at them for not saying anything. But it's 1982. It's a different time and place. I'm okay where they're not telling anybody. Not smart. Doesn't help her credibility because it would be nice to have some proof. But here's what I do have a problem with. Where's the diary? Where's the diary? 15-year-old girl has who probably has had no sexual experience at all in her life at that point. She gets assaulted by this 17-year-old boy and she doesn't put it anywhere. Diary journal, what have you. That seems odd to me. That's a problem. Then she doesn't tell anybody, including her friend, this doctor, this uh, Leland Kaiser, who, who just came out uh, in the last uh, 36 hours saying that uh, she, she has no knowledge of this party and she doesn't even know Kavanaugh. She's the woman that Ford puts as one of the five people at this party. She She's a lifelong friend of Ford's. She never mentions this? Ever? To Kaiser? 
even when four when Kavanaugh becomes a uh, a Supreme Court nominee. Now, in hour number two, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, the memory expert, actually has a remarkably similar experience in her life, some of which dovetails with Ford and Kaiser's story, and some of which contradicts it in her own experience. So make sure you check that out. But the, the, the problem I have here is that people are not remembering things that they should remember, including her. And the first time she ever says anything about this on record is 30 years later in therapy, in therapy. Now, just to be clear, here's the factual record. She doesn't know the time and place it happened. She never told anybody. She never kept a journal. There's no record of this until 30 years later when she says something about it to the therapist, no evidence to use Brett Kavanaugh's name at the time. Okay? <laughs> um, and now, all of a sudden, this comes out at the very last moment under very suspicious circumstances. And, and Diane Feinstein, there, you, you know what? Um, Ford could be telling 100% the truth. And Diane Feinstein has uh, a lot to answer for. She's never going to be forced to answer for it, but she should. She sits on this letter for two months. I, in my opinion, she lies about the letter. Read that original letter. Ford wants to tell her story. She does not want to remain anonymous. I have seen letters like that uh, dozens of times in my lifetime as a journalist, especially in the Penn State case where there's a lot of hesitancy to tell what you know. And if I ever got a letter like that, I'd be like, Eureka! <laughs> This person wants to talk really badly. And yet Feinstein lies and says she wants to remain anonymous. And then all of a sudden, Ford, a couple days later, comes out in the Washington Post. And now there's all this hemming and hawing over whether she's going to testify. And then, of course, Feinstein uses the language of Me Too, where she says that Ford is being bullied by the mean, nasty Republicans. It's all bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit. So, frankly, Feinstein has done not one thing to help Ford's case. Not one thing in my mind. And it feels like it's all political. But again, I'm trying to give Ford as much benefit of the doubt as possible. But Ford has placed four people there. Four people. Two of whom obviously have a huge incentive to lie. I get that. Kavanaugh and Mark Judge. I get that. So I'm willing to discount them. There's this other guy named PJ who has not gotten much attention. But he has said, nope, wasn't there. I have no knowledge of this party. And this Leland Kaiser who is by far the most interesting person with regard to her view that this party never occurred because she's a lifelong friend of Ford's. She is the ex-wife of Bob Beckel. Shows you how small the world is in D.C. Bob Beckel, the former Fox News analyst who's a Democratic operative. She's a, a Democrat. Kaiser is. Surprise, surprise. And yet she says, I have no memory of the party which to me, you would have a memory of that. And most importantly, I don't know Kavanaugh. How is that possible? How is it possible you don't even know Kavanaugh if this party ever happened and your friend, your lifelong friend, Dr. Ford, had been assaulted by Kavanaugh that day? Even if Ford never said anything to her. 
it's strange credulity to think that, okay, how did these five people get together? How did this happen? (laughs) Again, not just logistically, how did she drive there? How did Ford get there as a 15-year-old girl? But without social media (laughs) and those cell phones, how did they get together? I, I, I have no explanation. I'm open to that, but it seems awfully crazy to me. So what really happened here? What really happened? I have a theory. I get into this in hour number two with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. And this is a theory that, while it's going to sound somewhat wacky, actually explains all the evidence in this case and allows for no one to actually be blatantly lying. I think it is possible. Let me emphasize, I still believe it's possible she's telling the truth. I do not believe that it's ever going to reach the level of proof or evidence required to take out a Supreme Court nominee at the last minute. I don't see how that is remotely possible based upon the current factual record. But that doesn't mean something didn't happen. So is it possible that she was assaulted? It's certainly very possible she was assaulted. It's very possible she was assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. I don't necessarily believe that, but I'm open to that. I'm open if she testifies. And by the way, I think if she testifies, Kavanaugh is in big trouble, regardless of the truth. Let me get that out there very clearly. I think Kavanaugh is is close to toast if she testifies publicly because we've already seen that the deck is literally stacked against you. You have no way to prove a negative. And she, if she comes across even remotely sympathetically, which I'm sure she will, especially with the media blowing a hurricane force wind at her back, then he will, she will be believed. He won't be. And at least a couple of Republican senators will wimp out. That's what will happen. I mean, that's the, and, and that's why the Kavanaugh people are right to be, freaked out and acting a little bit panicked because they know they know even if they're 100% innocent there's a very good chance he's going to get railroaded here they know that and i think it's it's created some mistakes on their part like that disastrous ed whalen mistaken identity theory that blew up on twitter anyway so what really did happen to me this is a very logical scenario I think that she was aware of this group of people. She clearly had a relationship with Kaiser. Her school had some connections, although not that strong, to Georgetown Prep. But these are people within her basic peer group. She may have gone to parties that were somewhat similar to this. Again, maybe something like this sort of kind of happened. But she never said anything to anybody because Oxum's razor, it didn't happen. And she never thought it happened until many, 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 many years later. So what changed? What made her think something like this happened? Well, we have an explanation that has not gotten nearly enough attention. In fact, the only attention it's gotten has been in the exact opposite direction of the way that I think is far more logical. Because the person she places in the room with her and Brett Kavanaugh, Mark Judge, a 
prominent conservative writer who has written a lot of books, wrote two books, two books about his time at Georgetown Prep and the alcohol-laced debauchery that occurred in his time period at Georgetown Prep. Two books, one in 1997, one in 2005, the second of which had a title that had Georgetown Prep in the title, okay? So if you're someone like her who lived in that area of the country, lived in that time period, may have experienced some of that, she's a liberal academic, obviously she reads books, it is quite plausible that that's of interest to you. And interestingly, in the 1997 version of the book, Mark Judge creates a character named Bart Bart O. Kavanaugh. Bart O. Kavanaugh. Not exactly a stretch from Brett Kavanaugh. And it's well known and on the record that Judge and Kavanaugh are friends. So if, and it's a big if, but it's hardly a stretch, if Ford read either one or both of these books, now the scene has already been set. Judge is effectively a narrator in her mind as her mind is, is creating, it's planting this seed of a familiar yet false memory about what happens. And over time, events occur which help to further the growing of this seed. Like, for instance, the second book, maybe marital problems that cause therapy, Kavanaugh becoming more prominent, becoming a federal judge. And in 2012, 30 years after this happens, with, in her mind, the seeds of Judge's book having grown and now being watered by a therapist, and who knows what other motivations might be at work with regard to Ford's engaging in this marital therapy, it comes out. Again, we don't even know if it comes out with Kavanaugh's name attached. But over time, she comes to actually believe this happened. Now, why does she? There's all sorts of psychosomatic possibilities. I think it's very interesting that she's a liberal and Kavanaugh and Judge are ardent conservatives. That's very interesting to me. She just happens to have, of all the people she knew in that, in that time frame or didn't know, that she just happens to put Kavanaugh and Judge as her assaulters in that room. That feels very consistent to me like something that might get conjured up in the subconscious of a liberal academic female who's being, her whole world is being assaulted by white male conservatives. Again, totally conjecture on my part, but not implausible. But the most interesting element of this to me is she places Mark Judge in the room. Now, I grew up Catholic, all boys school, had very little contact with girls in high school. If 
if, and Brett Kavanaugh does not appear to be this guy, and I knew guys like this. I was not one of them, okay? <laughs> but if Brett Kavanaugh was a guy who had that much game that he was perfectly comfortable <laughs> with having his buddy in the room with him as he made a move on a 15-year-old girl, guess what would have happened? It would have happened again. This would not have been the only time that this would have occurred. This is the act of someone who has this as their M.O. Because they're comfortable. What, what, what is Kavanaugh? I know he's supposedly drunk. But what is Kavanaugh thinking is going to happen? He's going to have sex with this 15-year-old girl while his buddy watches? That is not the act of a Catholic prep school kid in 1982 unless they're a sociopath who has way way more lack of a better term it's a bad term in this context game than somebody who would have done this one time and why are there no other accusers where are the other accusers my god in every single media firestorm that we've had in this in these types of situations in the me too era we know the pattern there's the initial allegation the media embraces it they fan the, they fan the flames and then what happens 3 or 4 days later Another one comes, then five days later, another one comes, then six days, another one comes. We saw it in the Jim Jordan case, and that was all bullshit. And he wasn't even the one accused. <laughs> so where are the other Kavanaugh accusers? And I love the fact that liberals, if there ever became a second Kavanaugh accuser, would go, see, proof he's guilty. Well, wait a minute. If it's proof he's guilty, if there's a second accuser, why is it not proof he's innocent that there's not a second accuser? How does that work? There's no logic here at all, which is part of why this whole topic drives me fucking crazy. Because it's like we're living in, in bizarro world. We're up is down and down is up and the truth means nothing. Logic means nothing. And it, it it's incredibly frustrating. So... Do I know that this is what happens? No, but it certainly explains everything. It explains why she believes it happened. It explains why she passes the lie detector test. It explains why when Kavanaugh's name comes up for the Supreme Court, she feels like I need to be the heroine to save the world from this horrible person. And I write this letter to Dianne Feinstein who completely butchers it in every way possible. And it explains why she's willing to testify, but also not that enthusiastic about it. Because there's something in her subconscious that's saying, oh, this is not a great idea. Um, this is probably not the right thing to do. It's probably, that voice might be like a little tiny whisper now, because frankly, she's being, in her world, she's being hailed as a heroine. I mean, my God, in liberal academia, People haven't even heard her speak, and there are already celebrities making YouTube videos about how awesome she is. People from her high school, alumni from her high school, 500 or 600 of them or something, wrote, signed a letter supporting her before they had any clue about the nature of her story, before we even knew about what the other four people of the party even said. So that explains my theory explains all of her behavior and she's not concocting this as a lie to take down Brett Kavanaugh. 
Her mind is playing tricks on her and other people are enabling that. Like the therapist, like maybe her husband who's desperate for an explanation for why their marriage is in trouble. Aha, this is it. So everyone becomes invested in this narrative. And over time, it festers. And by the way, it's important to point out, under my theory, it also explains why no logistical information. Because if you create a memory, there's a good reason why you have no, re no idea where it happened or when it happened or how you got home. Because that wasn't part of the memory you created. You don't have any memory of the year or the place or the logistical details of how you got there and how you got home because it didn't happen. That explains everything about her behavior. It also explains why the other four people have no fucking idea what she's talking about. And there's no way. I, I know liberals are desperate, desperate to spin in any way possible, everything. I mean, there, there's literally, I've asked people this on Twitter and I never get a good answer. Tell me what piece of information would discredit her story. And there's like basically anything short of her admitting she made it all up. It, not, nothing is beyond being rationalized. You cannot rationalize not one of the four people having a clue about the party. Yes, Kavanaugh and judge have an incentive not to remember the party. I get that. I'm willing to say, you know what? That's irrelevant. Totally irrelevant whether they remember the party or not. It's interesting because I, you know, I'm not presuming Kavanaugh's lying either. It's weird that you can't presume she's lying, but it's perfectly fine to presume that Kavanaugh's lying. Anyway, I'm willing, for the sake of argument, to discount the the testimony of or the, the statements of Judge and Kavanaugh that this party didn't happen. But how do you explain the other two? And how do you specifically explain Leland Kaiser? Because Leland Kaiser has a huge incentive to remember the party. Huge. She's a Democrat, and she's a friend of Ford's, and she's a woman. So she is betraying her party, her gender, and her friend by not remembering a party that anybody would remember. So to me, so far, she's the most important person now bizarrely she's saying at the end of her statement but i believe her allegation and i'm like what the fuck <laughs> i made the analogy on twitter i said this is like if a woman who oj simpson had claimed to the police yep i was with her at my home during the murders and the woman came forward and said well actually um i was not with oj during the murders i've never been to his home i was out of state that night but i still believe he's innocent <laughs> That's basically what she's saying. That's completely absurd. I mean, come on, people. Can we, lose, we use our brains? It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's the type of gymnastics you have to do to come to the conclusion that you're already invested in. So anyway, let me just say bottom line of all this. If she testifies, and who knows if she's really going to or not. I think it's very telling that they've been trying to put all these political stipulations on this. If Ford testifies publicly, I believe Kavanaugh is toast, regardless of what the truth is. Because I don't believe, unlike with Anita Hill, I don't believe any Republican, any white male Republican, or even a female Republican, if, if they find a lawyer that, that uh, Ford will take questions from, I don't believe anyone's going to have the, the balls to ask the right questions here. 
And so therefore, her story is going to remain intact. And by the way, here's my prediction. If she testifies, I think we're going to hear a lot more about the trauma of her coming forward and all she's experienced with the death threats and the criticism and people not believing her and how tough it was. And while she's lived with this for so long, we're going to hear a lot more about that aspect of the story than we are about the gaps in her memory and her story. That's my prediction. I'm going to make two predictions about her testimony. Number one, we'll hear a lot more about the peripheral bullshit. Not that it's, I'm not trying to diminish it, but I, I've gotten, everyone's gotten death threats in the public life. I've gotten lots of death threats. I've never once given it a damn thought, okay? But I'm a white male conservative, so no one cares about me getting death threats. So, but the reality is we're going to hear a lot more about the trauma of her coming forward than we are the details of that alleged event. And I think she will be seen as sympathetic and that Kavanaugh will be toast. So the negotiations for that testimony are really important because if Republicans don't understand that if she testifies under anything close to the circumstances she wants to testify under, it's going to take a miracle for Kavanaugh to, to be able to survive based upon this Me Too environment and these crazy rules that we've all created. And let's be clear about the rules. Look, the rules used to be too much in the favor of men. I get that. But now the rules are way too much in favor of women and the accuser. The pendulum has swung too far. And this story, if Kav- especially if Kavanaugh goes down, will prove that. Uh, I wrote a couple of columns about this, which you might find interesting at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And I'm sure I'll, I'll continue to write them this week uh, as the uh, testimony, whether it happens or not, uh, supposedly is going to occur uh, during the next few days, potentially, I guess, Thursday at this point. But it keeps changing. So who knows? So stay tuned and keep keep up to date with my Twitter and Facebook pages uh, for anything I might write about uh, this ongoing saga. Uh, as I predicted, Bob Woodward's book has done nothing. Bob Woodward's book, preeminent journalist, uh, although I don't think he deserves that reputation, but in the media's eyes, he's basically a journalistic god. And um, I, I uh, am not uh, of that belief. I, I'm more skeptical about Bob Woodward. But I think in general, I mean, he clearly had access to a lot of people. And I, I believe the general conclusions of his book, which are, one, that Trump is not fit for office. Um, Correct. And that, two... Uh, there's a, at least some sort of a soft or silent coup going on that effectively means that Trump really isn't even president. Correct. So I, I believe those conclusions, and those are explosive conclusions. I mean, it's just so crazy we're even talking about this. But I said from the beginning, Woodward made a massive mistake. If his goal was anything more than selling books, he made a massive mistake in agreeing during his interviews that he could not release the tapes that he had recording of those with whom he spoke. He should have made it very clear that, okay, I'm fine with anonymity. I'll provide you anonymity. But if you deny what you're saying in this book publicly, I will be forced to release the tapes. Therefore, you know, people like John Kelly or General Mattis, they would have said no comment. That's not what they did. And so that was a, now maybe they wouldn't have done the interviews, but I'm sorry if, if you're trying to actually impact 
events and save the world, which is really the, the premise here, rather than just sell books, Woodward should not have made that deal. And I was dead right about this. It has made no impact at all. And it's already been forgotten about. And in fact, it's helped Trump. Because what allegation can anybody from inside the White House make now? And oh, by the way, we totally forgot about the anonymous op-ed writer in the New York Times. It's been completely forgotten. Completely forgotten. So I was right about that. This Rob Rosenstein uh, story from the New York Times on Friday. This is kind of hilarious if it wasn't so damn serious. That supposedly he considered trying to invoke the 25th Amendment and wearing a wire to record Trump after Trump fired Comey. Now, that's crazy even by Trump standards for the assistant attorney general to say that. The story is also bullshit. There is no way that's real. It doesn't jive with any of Rosenstein's own actions or statements. In fact, now, granted, I think Trump forced Rosenstein to do this, but it was Rosenstein who put out the statement that that Comey was properly fired because of, ironically enough, his treatment of Hillary Clinton, which was all bullshit. But for Rosenstein to then say that this is all about the, you know, this is a cause for the 25th Amendment and I'll even wear a wire, that just doesn't smack as true. That just doesn't feel, doesn't pass the smell test. And sure enough, it appears as if other outlets have information that if he said this, it was a joke. It was a joke. Now, was it an appropriate joke? No, but I can certainly understand it, <laughs> dealing with Trump. So how the New York Times decides that they're going to put this in a, in a real news story without even implying that it could have been a joke, that is uh, inappropriate. That is wrong. And it is potentially, ironically enough, very destructive to the Russian investigation because now, of course, Trump has every reason to be pissed at Rosenstein and finally fire him. And if Rosenstein is fired, guess what? That means Mueller's investigation is hanging by a thread because Rosenstein's the only one that's really protecting it. Correct. So, and then, of course, you have the, the most hilarious part of this whole thing is Colt 45, the, the Colt 45 media is so confused as to how to handle this. Laura Ingram's of the world, they immediately said, Rosenstein must be fired. And then Sean Hannity went on Fox News Channel and said, under no circumstances do you fire Rosenstein because this is a setup by the New York Times. <laughs> to which Bill Crystal, <laughs> actual real conservative from the Weekly Standard, he tweeted Hannity's clip and described it as, 146 dimensional chess <laughs> because somehow somehow the New York Times got Sean Hannity to be supporting Ron Rosenstein <laughs> you just can't make this up it's just flat out ridiculous but so maybe Rosenstein and by the I think I saw Laura Ingram I, I clicked on one of her tweets, uh, I think it was this morning, and it was deleted. So apparently Laura Ingram has reversed herself on Rosenstein. So I guess she got the memo from, from the, the cult headquarters. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen with Rosenstein, but the story is bullshit. Uh, another story with regard to, to, to Trump, which got a lot of play for about three hours this week, was Stormy Daniels has a book coming out. And uh, and one of the things in the book is she has a very vivid description of Donald Trump's penis. She actually describes it 
uh, as like being from a cartoon video game, uh, a character named Toad, which uh, apparently is short with a big head. Um, now, do I know this is true? Absolutely not. But I have absolutely no problem believing it because it is obvious to anybody that understands anything about male psychology that Donald Trump is incredibly, overwhelmingly insecure. And it makes no sense unless, two things, he's not as rich as he says, which I've always believed is the case, and or he has a deficiency with regard to his manhood, which is why he's always pretending to be super rich and having, you know, big manhood. He's, he's literally said it. I mean, he said it at a presidential debate. He said it essentially in a tweet about Kim Jong-un. So, I, I mean, this is a guy constantly bragging about his wealth and constantly bragging about his manhood. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out those are the two things he's probably lying about, especially when he's a pathological liar to begin with. So the two things, when a pathological liar is constantly bragging about two things that normal people who are super rich or have a big dick aren't lying about, they aren't bragging about, I should say, those people don't brag, all right? I've been especially around a lot of people with a lot of money. They don't brag about their money. That's the first sign you're not really rich is that you're bragging about how rich you are. So if you're bragging about how rich you are and you're bragging about your big manhood, guess what? Even if you're not a pathological liar, you're probably lying about that. And if you are a pathological liar, I'm positive you're lying about it. Positive. Um, so I found that to be interesting. <laughs> And, uh, oh, yeah, one other thing I've been, I should have talked about this with Rod Rosenstein and the Russian investigation. You know, I have been incredibly open-minded on Russia. I keep inching towards Trump's being guilty, but he'll get away with it. I have to say, I need to mention this, because this is in the realm of absence of evidence is evidence of absence. If you're somebody who believes that Trump is toast on Russia, there's a couple things that have not happened that you should consider to be problematic. And I have said this constantly that, that especially liberals are putting way too much faith in Robert Mueller. Like he's Superman. Like he can magically prove things that are not provable. Um, and I, I'm a big Oxum's razor guy, especially with Trump. He's not that complicated. Why has he not attacked David Pecker, the guy from the, runs the National Enquirer on Twitter? Why has he not attacked the uh, the CEO of the Trump Organization who allegedly flipped on him to Mueller? Why has he not attacked Paul Manafort, who since the last time we talked has pled guilty to further charges in the Mueller probe and pledged his cooperation in the Russian investigation? Why is he not attacking those people? That doesn't mean for sure that they haven't flipped on him. But to me, the lack of that is problematic because if they had flipped on him, he would know it. He would be scared out of his fucking mind and we would see it on Twitter. Why has that not happened? And I, and, and frankly, you know, yes, it's interesting that Manafort has pled guilty and pledged cooperation. Manafort, if if anything close to the liberal fantasy of 
uh, and I don't say it's fantasy as far as it couldn't have happened, but this is their this is their dream. I should say the liberal dream that Trump is going to be proven to be a a, a Russian agent and uh, he'll be removed from office. If anything close to that is true, then Paul Manafort is at the heart of the whole thing. He's the guy with the most Russian connections. He was the chairman of the campaign. He was in the Trump Tower meeting. So Paul Manafort is everything. And apparently the deal that Manafort made makes it impossible for him to be pardoned by Trump. And so why has Trump been silent on Manafort? Doesn't prove that Manafort isn't really a threat. It's just consistent with the idea that he might not be. And I've always felt Manafort is the key, mainly because he provided by far the most important 12 seconds in this entire investigation. It is a clip that is amazing to me, has not been seen by every American numerous times over, because I find this clip to be fascinating simply from a human perspective. This is Paul Manafort being interviewed on CBS by Nora O'Donnell, a woman I've had some run-ins with, by the way, as an aside. But uh, And you can see him on YouTube, I think, but I digress. But uh, here's Nora O'Donnell interviewing Paul Manafort just before the Republican convention in 2016, asking what she clearly thinks is a kind of an inconsequential, just kind of check the box question and listen to Paul Manafort's off the charts lying response. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. (laughs) If you were making a movie... In fact, if you were making a Saturday Night Live sketch and you were trying to create a guy who was going to give the, the, the response that was most obviously consistent with lying, I don't think you could come up with anything better than... That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> I just... I, I could watch this all day. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> Let's just break this down. Not that it needs it, but just for the record. That's what he said. That's his first response, which is always the most important. That's what he said. Not what I would know to be the truth, since I've had a lot of relationships with Russian oligarchs, which has been proven by my guilty pleas. But, but, uh, but that's what he said. Then he says, wait a minute, hold on. That's, I, I can't say that. That's what, then he changes it to, that's what I said, because he's trying to protect the candidate. So he's not speaking on behalf of Trump. He's saying that's what I said. And then he says, well, wait a minute, that puts me in jeopardy because now I'm putting my word on the line here. So then he switches it from, from, him to me to our position is not even what the truth is what our position is now that to me i mean that, my, i would hope that the manafort the uh, not the manafort the, the Mueller people have that like on a loop <laughs> playing in the office because you just never get tired of it it's just hilarious so to be clear mr trump has no financial relationships with any russian oligarchs that, that's what he said i, I didn't that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> Seems pretty clear cut. <laughs> Nothing to see here. And then the really funny part is that um, the the co-host, who is, and his name is escaping me, it's, it's Oprah Winfrey's uh, friend, 
the African-American female on the CBS Morning Show. She basically kind of like mocks the, even the question and moves on to some other topic immediately. Uh, oh, yeah, Gail. That's her name. Yeah. Uh, so um, in history, if this thing turns out to be, uh, you know, real and there, there's and this results in the impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, that clip is going to be, uh, at least should be, exceedingly famous. And uh, like I said, I, I never get tired of it. Last thing before we leave. Uh, obviously, anyone who knows me uh, knows that uh, Tiger Woods has played a major role in my life. <laughs> the whole story is far too long to get into, but uh, I was his biggest fan starting back in 1994. Uh, I created uh, the fictitious First Church of Tiger Woods on the radio in Nashville, Tennessee in 1996 before he ever won a m- major championship, which probably is why I got fired in Nashville not too long after that. But before he ever won a major championship, in fact, basically before he even turned pro, I, I created the uh, first church of Tiger Woods where we used to pray to, to him fictitiously, facetiously on the air in Nashville, WWTN and, and FM in Nashville. And then uh, before he ever even won a U.S. Open, I created uh, www.tigerwoodsisgod.com, which again was half facetious, half serious. Uh, and, real, and Sports Illustrated actually voted it one of the three best things ever written about Tiger Woods. Uh, that was in uh, late two th- 1999, early 2000. And so um, I was his biggest fan. I, I've been very good at being able to predict his ups, ups and downs. After the scandal, I disbanded the website because uh, I was incredibly disappointed and angered. And uh, in 2014, I wrote a cover story for the uh, weekly magazine in Louisville, where I used to be a talk show host, with Tiger Woods being put in a casket on the cover because the PGA Championship was in Louisville that week, and I was visiting uh, friends. And so I, I wrote um, this article, where, which I still stand by, where I'm basically burying Tiger Woods in 2014, as, the, as he'll never be the greatest player in the game again. I did say in there he might win another tournament at some point or maybe another major championship, but it might be a fluke. And I felt really good about that. Uh, prediction for the last several years because it turned out exactly as I anticipated until this year. Because what Tiger Woods has done so far this year is beyond amazing. Uh, it, in some ways, it is the most remarkable <clears throat> uh, human athletic comeback uh, of a person of his stature that I have ever seen in my 51 years. And I've been somewhat conflicted about it because. You know, when, usually when I write somebody off, that's pretty much it. But there was always still a part of me that was rooting for him, that still had affection for him. I've always seen him as far more than just an athlete. I've seen him, and I've written about this extensively, as really almost a scientific experiment in what is possible for humanity. And I have a very dim view of humanity. And for Tiger Woods to be able to do something, I felt like it was a statement about the potential of humanity. Uh, there's been no mistake about how big of a part he has played uh, in my life, simply as far as just the amount of time I've spent not just chronicling him, uh, but also watching him. My daughter, Grace, you know Grace, of course. Uh, she became famous on the show. Uh, well, this is a better It's costing money. Right, yeah. And that's about why the old radio show ended. Um, she, to this day, refers to Tiger Woods as the man who broke daddy's heart. 
I have these photos, autographed, uh, framed photos of Tiger in my office. She's always very curious about them. And she refers to Tiger Woods as the man who broke daddy's heart. And that's 100% true. Tiger Woods broke my heart. Well, today, Tiger Woods is very likely to win the PGA Tour Championship. He's, as we speak, three shots ahead going into the final round. To my, I don't know if it's my credit, but at least my defense, I actually have said for months, this is, if he's ever going to win again, this is the tournament he's going to win. I said at the beginning of this week, he will never have a better chance to win a tournament than this week. And it's because of very logical reasons. The field, while it's a very exclusive field, top players, it's only 30 players. And when you have 30 players in the field, it doesn't matter who's in the field. That means that statistically, the winning score is going to be lower and more attainable because you just don't have the normal field of 154 guys. So that's number one. Number two, very high stakes. Very high stakes because of all the money involved. Well, he doesn't care about money, but some of these other guys do care about money. So you're going to have a choke factor that he's not going to be uh, vulnerable to. So now you basically only have maybe 10 to 15 guys that can win the event. Plus, he loves the golf course. He's played very well on it. So all of this is the perfect storm for him to win. And so I'm not surprised at all that he's three shots ahead. Now, is it possible that he's going to choke this? I mean, he's playing with Rory McIlroy, one of the best players in the game today. It should be spectacular viewing. I believe he's going to win. I think it's possible, you know, he might just have a block. And if he does have a block and if he does blow this, he'll probably never win again because he'll never have this good of an opportunity. Not in a major championship, not in a full field event. So it's basically, <laughs> it's now or never. And I think it's now. I, I, he is driving the ball and putting like I never thought was possible post the back surgeries. And he has shown that while there's still some mental scar tissue that he, he never had during his prime, that he's able to overcome it. And so I'm very much looking forward to um, how I'm going to react to this uh, when and if it happens, because I'm now rooting for it. I'm, I'm rooting for Tiger Woods. You know why? Because I'm rooting for humanity. I'm rooting for the idea that a human being can, within just over a year, go from Tiger Woods' mugshot, which was one of the worst mugshots ever taken of a major celebrity, where he's, he's arrested for DUI in a situation where he doesn't even know what happened. He's so out of it. Where he can't even hit golf balls because he can't move his back. Where, where that was over, just over a year ago. He himself was telling friends, he's done, it's over. And the age of 42 for him to come back and potentially win the PGA Tour championship. And there's even a chance, as insane as this is, he could win the whole FedEx Cup with a little bit of luck. It's off the charts. It's as good as it gets. And especially in this day and age, it's a story that we all need. And so I'm all on board. I think it's happening. And I'm very curious to see how uh, not just me, but the rest of the world is going to react if, in fact, it does happen. If it happens, I think he's Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. I really do. I don't know see who else it could be if he, if he pulls this off. And um, I also may be using this as an opportunity if he wins to sell some of my Tiger Woods memorabilia, which my wife, my wife is very much looking forward to because she's been very pissed over the last few years as that memorabilia has been diminishing in value. So if you see an eBay posting from somebody in California trying to sell some Tiger Woods stuff, it, it might just be me. All right.
<laughs> All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World Corner Zig Podcast. Please make sure that you listen to hour number two, my exclusive interview with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, one of the world's foremost and renowned memory experts. Also, hour number three, a special hour on the Trump cult that I think you'll enjoy as well. So a ton, tons of great stuff. And I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this. Just tag me when you do, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook. I'll retweet it or, re- or share it, what have you. It, it really helps a lot uh, in spreading the word, whether that's on social media or word of mouth. And also do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.